0: Houston, we have a podcast. Welcome to the official podcast of the NASA Johnson Space Center, Episode 41, The Space Launch System, Part 1. I'm Gary Jordan and I'll be your host today. On this podcast, we bring in the experts, NASA scientists, engineers, astronauts, all to let you know the coolest information right here at NASA. So today we're talking about the most powerful rocket since the Saturn V moon rocket. It's called NASA's Space Launch System. So we've got two guests from Marshall Space Flight Center in Huntsville, Alabama here with us today to tell us a little bit about the rocket, the payloads it will carry. Don't worry, we define what a payload is. And then where it's going to go. Spoiler alert, it will bring people, big stuff, and little stuff all farther than we've ever gone before. Wait, why did I do that? That totally ruins the, oh wait, never mind. It doesn't ruin anything. This is a really good topic, jam-packed with information. So much information that we're gonna do this in two parts. This is part one. So with us today are David Smith and Paul Bookout. David is the Vice President for Advanced Programs at Victory Solutions in Huntsville, Alabama. He has a long career in aerospace engineering and is a subject matter expert on rocket architecture and how payloads fit inside the rocket. He wrote the SLS Mission Planner's Guide, which gives payload developers a general idea of the capabilities of the rocket and some technical specifications so they can determine how their payloads might fit inside of it. He looks after some of the big payloads. Our other guest is Dr. Paul Bookout. EM-1 Secondary Payloads Integration Manager, who manages the integration of five CubeSats in the giant rocket, as well as the avionics that will control deployment of the 13 small satellite payloads on the first mission of SLS and Orion called Exploration Mission 1 EM-1. He spends his time managing the little payloads, not much bigger than a shoebox, that goes inside of a skyscraper-sized rocket. So we're going to be talking about just how powerful this monster rocket is, its unique capabilities, and what it will be used for, where it is in its development, its first mission with the Orion crew vehicle, and then look ahead to the future uh, to missions to the moon, to Mars, and throughout the solar system. So we are go for launch with Mr. David Smith and Dr. Paul Bookout for the Space Launch System Program. T-minus 5, 4, 3, 2, 1 zero and liftoff of episode 41 of Houston, We Have a Podcast. always wanted to do that. See, I feel like I just ruined it. You know what? Let's just start. T-minus five
1: seconds and counting. Mark. Once you've been search for the no, There she goes. Houston, we have a podcast.
0: and David. Thanks so much for coming on the podcast today. We've talked about Orion on a few episodes so far, but really haven't had the privilege to talk about the giant rocket that Orion is going to be on, the SLS. And we have you guys here from Marshall to actually talk to us about this rocket. So thank you very much for coming on. Okay. Sure. Thank you for Our having us. Our pleasure. Alright, so just to sort of back up, we have uh, Paul Bookout and David Smith. So you guys want to talk a little bit about e- each one so we can identify your voices? <laughs> David,
2: go ahead. Well, sure. Um, I'm uh, just an engineer. My associate, Dr. <laughs> Bookout, is a doctor, ah, okay. but we both work together on trying to find <coughs> innovative ways to associate <coughs> payloads with the capability of SLS, which is going to be the world's largest rocket. So um, I kind of look at the larger payloads, and Dr. Bookout looks at maybe some of the uh, other kinds, smaller payloads that can fit in the niches that are left over.
1: Well, thank you, Vice President David. I yes. appreciate you uh, talking about uh, introducing myself. So... What we have is um, secondary payloads. Again, we're we're just trying to understand the whole utilization of SLS. Mm -hmm. Um, Since it's going to be the most powerful rocket built since the Saturn V, it's going to have a lot more capability, so we want to utilize it to its fullest.
0: Okay, so you said there's going to be... Basically, we're going to utilize the rocket to its maximum potential. We got this big rocket, and we're going to test it, but while we test it, let's put some cool stuff on it. Exactly. So let's back, back up and talk about just SLS. What, what is SLS? What is the, this giant rocket that we're talking about?
1: Uh, SLS is uh, America's rocket. It's the next um, NASA's launch vehicle that's going to be able to put humans uh, back to the moon and further out into deep space. Um, <clears throat> of course, a lot of it's built on shuttle hardware heritage. Um, the SLS rocket's made up of the solid rocket boosters, a main core, um, an upper stage, and then the, payload, the crew Orion spacecraft with a co-manifest payload or a uh, primary payload, and David will talk a little bit more about that later. Mm-hmm. Um, so of course this is NASA's uh, first exploration class um, launch vehicle since Saturn V, so we're going to be putting humans um, back to the moon, um, out to deep space, and eventually you know, to Mars mm-hmm. uh, systems. Um, it has a very large um, mass lift capability and also vo- volume. So some of these larger probes that are satellites or probes that are going to um, outer planets, that they'll be able to arrive at their destination um, in just a few years instead of uh, maybe eight to ten years. You're cutting that back trip down to one or two years. So it's a lot of savings there.
0: So that's, that's a really important part to kind of hone in on, is just the versatility of this rocket. You're talking about a giant rocket that can take people, giant payloads, faster, farther. That's pretty much the whole summary of the SLS, right?
1: Yes, definitely.
0: So what's what does it take to be human-rated? So I guess the difference between something that's not a rocket and, and something that is.
1: Um, of course, it goes through the whole development process. starts at the beginning. Mm. Um, you have to have... Um, um, Safety and Mission Assurance is um, involved from the very beginning. Um, just to overview, you have to have like redundant systems. If something goes wrong um, with one system, there's another system to kick in to back up mm-hmm. to still make the vehicle safe. Um, there's safety reviews throughout the whole uh, process. We do additional testing, a lot more testing than other um, commercial launch vehicles do, just to make sure that the vehicle is safe for humans.
0: That's really the main thing, right? Yes. The safety, but then Definitely. also the redundant un, redundancy because I guess redundancy is cost, redundancy is weight. So you have to factor that into a rocket where you can just say, oh, if it fails, you know, we're gonna with the primary systems it fails, but at least the only thing we lose is this piece of hardware. And not to say that that's not a bad thing, right. but it's it's very different from a human life. So I guess, absolutely, you need to be considerate of
1: that. Right, and there's a trade-off, as you were saying, uh, additional systems, more mass, um, and that's mass that is being taken away from your primary payloads Yeah. Uh, lift capability, but we need that to be safe.
0: You know what, I actually always wanted to ask this question, but you say primary payloads. I, I get this question all the time from f- folks not at NASA, and it's just we use this term all the time, but what to you is a payload?
1: A payload is anything that goes up on top of the rocket that's um, lifted into space. Um, it can be a, a satellite, it can. Um, Be probes. Um, Of course, uh, the Orion spacecraft. um, Once it's on the rocket, it can have its own second co-manifested payload along with it. Hmm. Um, So, just anything really. It's uh, launched into space.
0: Does a person count as a payload? We don't like to refer to (laughs) it. It doesn't humanize it as much, right? No. (laughs) So, I guess. For example, going back to that co-manifested thing, the Orion. Orion would be the payload. That would be the primary thing that you want to bring into orbit. Correct. But then there's something that is something called co-manifested, which means it's not the primary thing, but it's also part of the part that you want to lift the space. The mission, correct.
1: For example, on uh, B-1, the second generation of the SLS rocket, um, it will have capability of launching a co-manifest payload along with Orion and it could be anywhere from an additional probe going out to the moon or it can be a, um, a we call a separation bus a propulsion system that's launched and then when a uh, habitat is launched, then they can be combined and go to the moon. So it uh, allows us to build um, capabilities out in space, too, with co-manifested payloads, okay. along with Ryan.
0: Is that one of the things you're working on, or you're you working on, uh, I guess, secondary payloads? Yes, I'm okay. mainly focusing on secondary payloads. So what's secondary payloads?
1: Okay, secondary payloads, um, is, or they call, auxiliary payloads. Okay. Um, they're payloads that do not drive the primary mission of the um, Of that launch. Um, For example on EM-1 um, we have secondary payloads on that That's EM-1 exploration mission 1 first launch of SLS rocket. Um, We have 13 payloads on that and I'll talk a little bit more about that later but Mm -hmm. um, the primary requirements they have is for secondary payloads in general is um, do no harm to the vehicle and uh, minimal impact. So the do no harm aspect is that we have to fly safe um, the whole system, deployment system, everything, is designed to be safe. Um, like, all the CubeSats are turned off during the launch. Uh, they have to have like, redundant systems, as in two separation switches that allow them to turn on, because if one fails while we're being launched, it could turn on the system. So we have two there oh, okay. to back that up, to keep it safe. Um, and then minimal requirements, of course, if the rocket is ready to launch, and the secondary payload's not ready yet, it's going to launch, because it does not affect the primary mission of the payload, or the launch.
0: Right. Of that well, that mission. puts a lot of constraints on you then, huh? <laughs> yes, yes, it does. Because not only do you have to worry about these, and I guess we can kind of hone in on the CubeSats a little bit later, but um, you have to worry about the CubeSats, but now you have to add something else to it. Now you have to add these redundant systems, and then there's no guarantee that if, if you're not ready... That's okay. We're going to go without you. Right, exactly.
1: <laughs> SLS is uh, the first rocket. It's not going to be the only configuration of SLS. Um, and, of course, SLS is Space Launch System. Um, we could, The first launch is going to be called Block 1. Um, then we're going to be stepping up to Block 1B, which means we're going to be adding a different upper stage. Um, right now we're utilizing an uh, existing Boeing ULA upper stage um, to use on this mission, hmm. uh, mainly to save uh, initial money um, so we can develop the core stage. And once the core stage has been developed, then we can have additional funds to start developing the uh, new upper stage or exploration upper stage. Okay. Okay. Um, and that's gonna be the Block 1B configuration. And Block 1B will have actually two configurations. It'll be a crew, which was, as we talked about before, a um, the Orion spacecraft with a co-manifested payload. The other configuration will be the Block 1B cargo, where that would be your primary payload. So the only payload will be that major payload.
0: Okay, so when you say block, you're looking at the entire rocket configuration. Correct. And Block 1 is this configuration with the ULA booster, right? Right. Okay, and then Block 1B has The NASA booster on top instead of the ULA, but then you can do crew or cargo on that one. Exactly. Whereas EM one, you don't EM one, and we can get into this later. Is you're not going to have crew on it, right? It's that's not part of the test. That's for one of the later missions. Correct. Okay. I see. So so really the blocks are kind of the stages of, of developing the rocket into its full capability of right. of this uh, uh, eventual Mars lander. That's awesome. So now you're using these commercial elements. You're using ULA and block one and the leftover uh, solid rocket boosters until eventually 1B, 1B crew, you get to block two. Now you have the configuration. New boosters. You got the NASA uh, upper stage. You got all of these configurations. And now you can go to... Where can you go? Can well, you, is it just to Mars?
2: Well, you, you really need Block 2 ultimately to, to fulfill a, a human settlement on the, on the lunar surface as well. You need really? that kind of lift capability. But if you want to assemble an architecture, because it will take multiple flights of a Block 2 to assemble a human architecture that's capable of transiting to Mars, you'll need four to five Block 2 flights at a time to assemble that stack that can go to Mars.
0: So what's, I guess, how much more power does Block 2 provide you that... Uh that, I guess, Block 1B would not.
2: Well, nominally, you're talking another 25 tons or so. So it could bring a second Orion vehicle in in comparison because Orion weighs about 25 tons. Mm -hmm. So it uh, really, from a lift standpoint, is maybe a fifth more powerful than the Block 1B, and it gives you that extra diameter, potentially, for the payload fairing that would allow, you know, the, the, the smaller the diameter of the fairing, The taller a lander needs to be. And think about a lander on the surface of the Moon or Mars, if it's three or four stories, that's a lot of uh, vertical height an astronaut has to overcome every time they're taking stuff back and forth. That's right. So we're, the larger the diameter, the shorter it can be, the squatter it can be, the easier it is to manipulate items on and off a lander, whether it's on the Moon or Mars.
0: Okay. Wow. So then you're talking about, once this block two configuration is done with the new solid rocket boosters, you can actually have a wider payload go on top of the rocket?
2: Right, well, uh, there's a nuclear thermal propulsion that's out there that um, has the uh, potential of getting people to Mars a lot sooner. Sure. It needs a much larger diameter because it uses hydrogen as a fuel. Hydrogen is very bulky because it isn't very dense. And so if we were ever to use a new kind of propulsion that would lower the time to get to Mars, uh, you need a Block 2 vehicle. A smaller rocket will never allow you to do nuclear thermal propulsion.
0: Okay, let's go back to uh, some of these other configurations. I kind of want to get a sense of of the look and feel of this rocket. We sort of talked about it, but to just sort of go into detail, if I was looking at, let's just say the Block 1 configuration, the one that's actually going to go for EM-1, what does that look like? How tall is it? What's the weight of it? How much power?
2: Right, so roughly Block 1 and 1B are somewhat similar. They're going to be about the same height as the Saturn V. Oh. which means it's a big rocket but part of that's because we can't really exceed the vehicle assembly building limitations that are at the cape so you want to make it as big as you can so you can put as much fuel in it as you can basically the thrust of the block one vehicle which is similar to the, the block one b for the the uh, solid rocket motors is about 3.6 million pounds each uh, those only fly for about two minutes then you have the core engines there's four space shuttle era type uh, ssme's that each have about 512 thousand pounds of thrust, you multiply that by four, they uh, operate for about eight minutes. Together you get about a total thrust of 8.8 million pounds, which gives you an escape velocity of over 22,000 miles an hour. The core stage itself is uh, about two-thirds the length of a football field, which is pretty tremendous. One single stage of this vehicle is about two-thirds of a football stadium, and uh, which is around 212 feet. And the Block 1B fairing that we talked about, the 8.4-meter diameter fairing, could accommodate up to three school buses inside its uh, volume, so that's pretty incredible when you think about the size of what can be lofted on a single vehicle like that. In comparison, the Block 1 vehicle, you know, can throw uh, 70 tons to low Earth orbit, where the shuttle can only do 28 tons to low Earth orbit. So it's about three times more powerful than the shuttle.
0: Wow. So it's a, so you're talking, you're comparing it to the Saturn V in terms of its size, but uh, talking about these efficient engines. What what makes what is a, what is about the engines that's more efficient? That's giving you this extra power.
2: Well, they you know the uh, shuttle engines were rated at 100% thrust originally, and I think they got them up to 109%. So they actually got them to work 9% more efficiently at the end of the shuttle program. <laughs> we're taking these up to 11% more thrust and maybe even 13% more thrust. So you're really pushing these engines to their limit and the the uh, it's really coupling their efficiency now at 113 percent thrust with the reliability of the shuttle system
0: unbelievable the engine itself is called an rs25 right yes that's what it's called and these these are the engines that were on the shuttle now you're pretty much just Putting it on the uh, SLS, but it sounds like there's a good reason for that. It's because you've flown the shuttle so many times, improved the capability of it, past its like total 100% thrust ratio. Now you're going, you're going past 100%. So basically, it's like why would we? Why would we do something else? We work so hard on this one. This one is like extremely efficient. Why would we? And, and we can make it even more efficient. That's the logic behind it.
1: Well, right. Um, initially, of course, we have about I believe 16. Um, Space Shuttle main engines, or Mm -hmm. these RS-25s, left over from the shuttle program. So we're utilizing the existing hardware Mm -hmm. to save cost while we're developing the core stage, you know, the first part of the SLS. And as you mentioned, we are are, uh, updating the engines, getting more capability out of them. Mm -hmm. Um, So to that point, we can do uh, four per, so we can do about four launches. Uh, four rockets or four uh, engines on the each launch so we can do about four launches with the current uh, RS25s
0: okay and that is that for one of the later configurations that's you, correct okay yes is it block, the block two? two Block, block two. two and beyond yes. Oh okay I see I, I see where the the whole idea of staging this whole thing comes from right you' got uh, you're using the leftover solid rocket boosters and you're using this commercial upper stage and it's just basically getting to this point where you're going to maximize the efficiency of the rocket. Unbelievable! So, um, three school buses inside of the one B configuration, right? That's—is it about the weight of three school buses? Is like taking three school buses to space? No, it
2: would be—it would be more than that. More uh, than that. I mean, nominally, if you went to the moon, we're going to take uh, the Block One B could take roughly forty tons to lunar vicinity, uh, which is which is pretty incredible. Wow!
0: And just in terms of not only. Like quantity, you're talking three school buses, but also size, yeah, also mass. weight. Right. You know, you got all these all these different components. So I guess we can kind of focus in on um, now that we kind of understand the rocket and the evolution of the rocket. Let's go to that first that first uh, test flight, EM one. We've talked about EM one on the podcast before, especially from testing Orion and and that, but but really haven't focused in on what is it about what is it about EM one that we're testing. SLS for. So let's, let's start with that. What, what are we going to test? And I guess we can kind of start with the overview of EM-1 for those who haven't listened to it before. Right. So um, EM-1
1: is of course going to be the first launch of the SLS rocket. Um, its primary uh, s- segments are of course the s- solid rocket motors which are heritage from Shuttle hardware. Mm-hmm. Uh, shuttle had four segments where EM-1 is going to have five segment motors. Um, then, of course, the core stage, which is heritage of the shuttle external tank, um, but um, made longer for additional capability of fuel. And we're also using the main engines from the shuttle program with updated um, technology and ratings um, to get more power out of those four rockets on there. Mm-hmm. Um, so that makes up the primary lift capability of the SLS rocket. On top of that, we have an interim cryogenic propulsion stage, which, or a second stage, upper stage, that we're utilizing from Boeing, um, existing hardware to for EM-1 mission. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, of course, we, in addition to uh, adapters, then there will be the Orion spacecraft, um, which is the uh, primary mission of em one is to test out the SLS rocket Mm -hmm. and then also to test out the Orion spacecraft um, with its trajectory and telemetries and communications. Um, It's going to be on a a 25 and a half day mission to Mm. um, distant retrograde orbit. That really means just go way past the moon and come back, you know, a 25 and a half day trip. Um, Of course, and you know we're doing all this because again for the safety aspects we want to test the vehicle out and Orion spacecraft before we put humans in it right so we want to make sure it's safe make sure everything works Um, and that's that safety aspect that human rated part of a launch vehicle
0: so the human rated part is the Orion can go to 25.5 days, or is this going past what it's expected to possibly operate at?
2: Um, I think that's, that's a nominal time frame for the Orion right. with, with crew. So this is pretty much, I think, its extreme capability. But, yeah. you know, part of it is testing just the systems, period. You always, for human rating, you always want to test it far in a, you know, far from what the humans will actually experience so that you— have a safety factor that's sufficient for human use.
0: Oh, yeah. Because if if you're going to be operating on, say, 16-day missions, you don't really want to, okay, well, let's just test 16. You really want to go kind of further out and see, all right, let's see how... how how far this puppy can go. Well,
2: and I think part of this mission's objective is to bring it in at a lunar return velocity to test that heat shield. Yeah. You can't do it from low-Earth orbit. you got to kind of go out and bring it in fast. So,
0: so what's the difference with EFT-1? That was one of the first test flights we did where we didn't go all the way out to the moon, but we did kind of a, a this large apogee so that we can get up to, I think it was, some like twenty-five thousand or miles or maybe it was a little slower than that the difference between eft1 and em1 I,
2: I think i think it was very close to what they would experience in a lunar return but it's not the actual lunar return i see right so you want to be able to stage it you, you want to go out in orbit you want to test the time that you're out in orbit that was a very short mission maybe five or six hours now we're talking 25 days well all the equipment still work when it's you know soaked in a cold temperature hot temperature all those days and now you're coming in, will it all work when it comes to the right moment? And so this is this really puts the uh, pedal to the
0: metal. That's right. So um, what is it, um, I guess the relationship between, uh, what are you guys looking at for SLS versus Orion on this particular mission, EM-1?
1: So for SLS, again, we want to, Test all the systems. Make sure they're mm. fully functional. Um, we'll be checking out um, redundant systems indirectly, of course, um, and communications with the vehicle. Since it's the first time the vehicle's being launched, there's um, we're all we're talking with the vehicle all the way up. Yeah. So we want to make sure all those ground systems are ready to support um, actually human flight missions. So it's just not the vehicle; it's the overall architecture of everything that goes into supporting a launch that we want to verify and check out.
0: Oh that's right now we're preparing to go in to fly deep space missions so not only is it all right let's test the hardware but let's taste the operational aspect. Let's let's test what it's going to take to actually do these missions from the broadest perspective possible.
2: That includes even just bringing the you know the pieces are being built all over the place and being tested all over the place so just bringing them together at the CAPE and it makes sure it can be integrated in a safe and timely fashion for launch. That in itself is a, is a really important objective. We're talking about such a large rocket.
1: Yeah, so this is the first time all those components are going to be coming together, and there's going to be hiccups along the way, and we just need to understand um, how this vehicle goes together and make sure we do it correctly.
0: So you say the vehicle is going to be talking to you guys throughout its, its flight. What is it going to be telling you? What kinds of data are you really looking for that's really going to tell you that this thing is working how we're expecting it to work.
2: Well, remember you're talking to payload guys, so you know, we're we're, we're more interested in seeing what the payload's going to experience, but think about yeah. this, when it launches on the pad, it has an incredible noise issue coming off that uh, mobile launch platform. That's uh-huh. why if you remember they have these things called rainbirds the big sprinklers that start spraying as soon as the engines go to try to mitigate that noise. Right. Uh, the, the payload is particularly sensitive to it. Obviously, the vehicle itself is sensitive to that noise as well. So acoustic mitigation is one of the most important things at launch. Then we have a thermal issue, right? We go up to max uh, Q, the max dynamic pressure. We have a certain heating that is, occurs on the outside of the vehicle. And before we got to get through all that heating before um, we can make sure that the crew is going to be safe, that we can take the shielding off the, the Orion and so forth. Mm-hmm. So we're going to be testing all those environmental concerns as we go forward. And, of course, the jettison of you know, the SRBs off the core stage, then the ICPS and Orion off the uh, core stage and then of course then the Orion off the ICPS. All these jettison events, there's quite a few of them, are extremely important. We need to test those. Each one has its associated thermal and acoustic issues, so we're going to test each one of those as it goes forward.
1: Since this is the first launch of SLS rocket, we don't really understand the full environments that it's going to be launched in. As David mentioned, the thermal, interior thermal, acoustic vibration, Um, it's the first time we're gonna launch it. So Mm -hmm. what we're gonna also have is a lot of instrumentation on this vehicle to be able to measure the actual um, vibration levels and everything else. So we can, once we go back to designing and looking at um, what we call safety factors, um, reducing those so we can have more um, margin on the vehicle and means that goes into more mass lift capabilities. So we're trying to understand the overall Uh, characteristics of the vehicle itself so in addition for secondary payload or payloads in general we can give them more of an accurate environment that they will see during launch uh, as in how much vibration they'll feel how much um, thermal environments that they will see so when they start designing their payloads for to ride on this vehicle they can have more of an accurate environment and maybe not have make it a lot more efficient design
0: Okay. So then what data are you going off of now based on, I guess you haven't you haven't launched the SLS, so what are you assuming or where are you getting the we, data from? We
2: we, have, we started off with assuming, at least for the payloads, that we would provide an ELV, expendable launch vehicle class environment. So if you've okay. flown on Atlas or Delta, you should expect nothing worse than that. Okay. That's our starting point. Oh, okay. Now what Paul's going into is we're going to try to characterize, is that really true? So the first flight's important. Uh-huh. Are we in are we out what do we have to do is there more foam that you got to put in the payload section to mitigate the noise Um, that's what we're trying to figure out but we should be within an elv class is what we're projecting right now
0: okay so then uh, i'm I'm assuming you're going to have some actual science on board em1 right because because you're testing you're testing the structure of em1 you're testing the rocket but then you got this mission. Why not take advantage of it? Is there anything else going on EM One?
1: Oh, definitely. Okay, good. Yes, um, we have um, we have thirteen secondary payloads that we're going to be launching on EM One. Wow. Um, that's that's uh, is located in the Orion stage adapter. That's the segment that connects the SLS rocket to the Orion spacecraft. Um, so it's a small ring, about five feet high, about eighteen or so feet in diameter, mm-hmm. um, and along the Inner circumference of that is where we are mounting these thirteen secondary payloads.
0: So, oh, so I guess they have to be kind of small, right? That's not, that's not a lot of space compared to the uh, what's in the fairing.
1: Correct. So on EM One, we have thirteen cubesats. Cubesats are um, defined as a um, we call a one U, which is about ten by ten by ten centimeter cube. Okay. Okay. So um, what we're having on EM One is allowing them to go up to a, what we call a six U. So it's a CubeSat that's about a little bit larger than the size of a shoebox, a large shoebox. Okay. Um, and that's kind of the dimensions of these 6U uh, CubeSats that we're having on EM-1.
2: Which is the th- most common CubeSat really today, right? Correct. You
1: say? It, exactly. Um, so we have multiple missions um, that these payloads are going to be doing. Um, of course, we've got one destination is the Moon. Um, we have Lunar Flashlight, which is out of um, Jet Propulsion Laboratory. And their primary mission is to search for ice deposits and resources on the moon using um, a laser. Okay, and the second one is Lunar Ice Cube, which is Moorhead State University up in Kentucky. And they're going to also be searching for water all forms um, and volatiles on the moon using infrared uh, spectrometer. These are some big words that I can't even define. So, <laughs> uh, Luna H Map is from Arizona State University, um, and they're going to be creating a high fidelity map of near surface hydrogen in craters on the Moon. Lunar IR is from Lockheed Martin in Colorado, and they're going to be performing advanced um, infrared imagery of lunar surface. Um, We've got one that's going to the Sun facility, uh, it's called CUSP. It's from Southwest Research Institute here in Texas, <coughs> and it's going to be measuring particles and magnetic fields of space weather between us and the Sun. Um, we have one uh, that's going to be around the Earth. It's called EQUILUS. It's a Japanese payload, and we actually have three uh, international payloads on this mission. And I'll touch on those others. Awesome. Um, so, again, Equilis is from JAXA, um, that's the University of Tokyo supporting that. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's imaging the Earth's plasma sphere, uh for a better understanding of the Earth's radiation environment. And also, it's going to be initially on the far side of the moon and um, detecting any uh, meteor craters, flashes. Um, that may impact the far side of the moon. Wow! So they'll be out there for about two months or so, and just hopefully they'll be able to catch something. <laughs> um, some of the other missions are uh, BioSentinel. It's from Ames Research Center, and they're going to be using a baker's yeast to see the effects of radiation on actual um, live, item, you know, live yeast. Mm-hmm. And then Argo Moon, uh, which is e- the European Space Agency. Um, is built in Italy. It's going to be observing the interim cryogenic propulsion stage. That's upper stage. It's going to be, uh, be deployed, look at the upper stage, um, and then it's going to go on some additional missions. And it's going to look at the upper stage to see um, what kind of effects the environment has during liftoff on the upper stage. Because until now, we've once the upper stage is launched, we usually don't get a chance to look the conditions of that. This will give us some feedback and see w- what the upper stage has went through, if there's any damage or anything.
0: It sounds like uh, these CubeSats are all over the place. Yes.
1: Yeah, I've got a couple <laughs> more here. Oh, the, really? I haven't got to my two favorite yet. So.
0: <laughs> oh, we're standing by.
1: Okay. Uh, Centennial Challenge, um, that was a challenge that NASA set up uh, called CubeQuest, um, and it's to help develop communications for these smaller CubeSats. Um, There's two uh, challenges. One was a lunar challenge uh, to go around the um, lunar surface and for longevity, Mm -hmm. and the other one was a deep space mission, which was a CubeSat, as it says, going out into deep space to see how far and long and, and what burst rates and clarity that you can have in your signals. So there's total prizes for everything through all the development and then final missions is up to $5 million. Wow. So that's a lot of money yeah. spread out um, <laughs> over those. So you did you asked what my two favorite payloads are, Oh yeah, right, let me tell you. Um, one of them is uh, NEOSCOUT, uh, that's developed at Marshall Space Flight Center. What's unique about that is uh, NEOSCOUT means near-Earth asteroid. So they're gonna be going to a near-Earth asteroid but the exciting thing about it is that they're going to be using a solar sail to get there for their propulsion system. So this is the first time um, a solar sail will be used to, for propulsion out into deep space. There have been other missions in low Earth orbit to check out the um, technology and feasibility of solar cells, but this is the first time going out into deep space. And for a CubeSat that's a little bit larger than a shoebox, <laughs> it will be deploying a sail that will be 40 by 40 feet whoa so that's huge
0: wait and a little cube and a little set cube and then it deploys set. a 40 foot
1: yes oh wow yes so that solar sail is very thin material
0: yeah it so must be to fold up into like this 10 centimeter cube thing exactly so so uh well, solar si- the,
1: the, the, you said 10 cent the uh, six U cube set is like 10 by twi- 20 by 30 oh because it's set, a six U, six U oh correct. okay okay
0: yeah. okay so, so solar sails though this is um it basically un unfurls this 40-foot sail, and is it is it the one where the high-powered laser that pushes no, it? That's no, this different? Is going to uh, ride
1: the solar winds. Ride the, the solar, solar winds. The solar particles will be pushing it along. Um, it'll do actually a flyby. Um, the near-Earth asteroid as it comes up, it'll be taking images all the way around as it passes.
0: Okay. Wow.
1: So, and my ultimate favorite one is, yeah, actu- is, the last one is actually the one that um, I'm a secondary payload integration manager for. Oh. So it's one of my CubeSats. So it's um, an
0: unbiased favorite then. Yes. Okay. Yes. I Still,
1: um, <laughs> it's called Omotanashi, and it's another Japanese CubeSat. Um, okay. And their mission is to land on the moon. Can oh. you imagine a small little CubeSat, you know, a little bit sh- larger than a shoebox, land on the moon? <laughs> Um, Of course, and the big thing about it is that they're going to be using a solid rocket motor to slow down to be able to land on the moon. So that's one of the things on EM-1 that we're offering that previous uh, commercial launch vehicles and that don't offer propulsion systems for secondary payload to be able to utilize that. That's one thing EM-1 and SLS is allowing. So that's a huge deal yeah. uh, for those. Um, so if Omotanashi is ex- successful landing on the moon, they'll be the fourth nation in the world to actually land and do some science on the moon. Wow.
0: You know, so other, what kind of science?
1: Um, well, because, again, they're still a small payload, so they can't get s- large science instruments to the moon. Mm-hmm. Um, when they land, actually land on the moon, the, all that will be left is about the size of a sandwich box. Um, because they have to get rid of all the extra weight to be able to slow down enough um, to be able to land. And they'll probably do some soil um, impact measurements, as in how soft uh, vibration shock as it's landing on the moon. Mm-hmm. Um, and I th- so, and they're only gonna be able to do it for about um, 30 minutes or so. Again, because of the size what we're limiting to, yeah, they can't get the mechanics Orbital mechanics and velocities and everything. Um, I'm sorry. Let me so back it's it's
0: kind of general on where you can land. Then it's just like it's it's just going to land. It's not going to land in a targeted spot, I guess.
1: Correct. They know the general facility vicinity where it's going to land. Okay. Um, but uh, they can't have ultimate control like any of the other landers that have larger systems, propulsion systems to slow them down. Mm-hmm. So there would be actually once the solar motor fires. They'll still be traveling at about 60 miles an hour when they impact the moon. So they're going to ha- inflate these um, impact balloons to actually bounce similar to what they've done on Mars, some of the Mars uh, rovers. Okay. So we will come and um, impact the moon and bounce, um, and then finally rest on the moon and okay. do about 30 minutes of impact soil measurements.
0: Wow. How would that be, though? I'm imagine, I mean, landing at 60 miles an hour, that's... You that's not slow, but at the same time, it's the moon, right? Right, yes, but then again, you're not
1: going directly into it. You know, you're coming in at an angle, too, so it's not a fully impact, direct impact. So
0: So you got all these CubeSats going around the Earth, around the upper stage, around the moon, on the moon, to deep space. Where do you deploy? How does that work? Where do you deploy everything? It's not just like you just let everything go at all. It it has to be pretty controlled, because each one has a very specific mission.
1: Right. We've created what we call bus stops. Um, They're basically different um, aspects of the trajectory of the upper stage. So the first bus stop is um, when you're in between the two radiation belts or Van Allen belts. Um, Bus stop two is when you passed all the radiation belts. Bus stop three is halfway between the earth and the moon bus stop four is the closest proximity to the moon, and bus stop five is when you're going into a heosynchronous or sun orbit. Um, And that's where the upper stage will be disposed into the sun orbit. Um, So when a payload says, hey, I wanna get off at uh, 200,000 miles away from the earth, Well, okay, where is that exactly? (laughs) So that's why we kind of created these bus stops. I see. Um, They can get off anywhere they want to, but it helps us um, relate to the areas of where they want off. So uh, most of them are wanting off at bus stop one about seven or eight of them, um, because they need to get out and start changing their trajectory as soon as possible. Again, we're offering propulsion systems, but they're not large enough to have um, really dire- change their directions uh, mm-hmm. further on. So a little change at first makes a big change later. Yes. So they wanna get off to be able to do that, uh, make those little changes. Um, most of the payloads that are going to lunar orbit, what they're wanting to do is slow down. Because the ICPS, you know, is launching Orion into this um, distant retrograde orbit, you know, way past the moon. Yeah. So it has a lot of velocity heading that way. <laughs> and if the payloads don't slow down, they'll just go flying past the moon. The moon can't, um, doesn't have enough gravity to pull them back into an orbit. Um, and some of them, even though they are going to the moon, they'll actually fly past the moon, and it may take a month or so for them to come back. You need to slow down enough to come back and get hooked into the moon's gravity and start orbiting the moon. Oh, wow. So it's not a direct flight into the moon orbit just because they don't have the propulsion systems large enough to be able to do that.
0: So is it fair to say they're all going to be in a very similar orbit or are they all going to kind of go their respective They're going to do their respective ways. Um, okay. Some
1: of them wants to do um, in the craters, so they'll be going to the pole system up to the poles to look see if there's ice up in there. And some of them will just be doing a, a regular geosynchronous type of orbit. Okay. Of thing. All right. We talked about where these uh, what the payloads are and where they're going to want to get off. Mm-hmm. Um, to be able to allow them to get off uh, again we have to have a deployment system where again some of the primary requirements for EM1 was or SLS is to do no harm and to have minimal impact to the vehicle yes well to do that latter one what we've come up with a system is that we will receive an energy the avionics unit for deploying the secondary payloads will receive an energy uh, pulse for from Orion or I'm sorry we receive an energy pulse from the uh, upper stage. Once Orion has already left um, and the upper stage has gone through its disposal maneuvers and it means burning off extra fuel and everything making it safe, mm-hmm. right before it shuts down, it will turn on the avionics unit for the deployment of secondary payloads. Um, then the upper stage turns off. So we wake up and it has, we've got our own internal battery system. Um, and each payload is inside of a dispenser and um so a dispenser operates is that it has a spring loaded um lid and the payloads inside are installed by compressing a spring hmm. so when the a- when it's time for that particular payload to be deployed we get an energy pulse from the avionics unit sent to the dispenser to open the door the door flings open and then the secondary payload is pushed out by springs so that's how the th- they're deployed
0: okay so like a so like an SLS jack in the box. <laughs> if you if you will. <laughs> that's how I'm imagining. Obviously it's going to be it's going to shoot out. We we, out we have pulled
1: this. those analogies before but I'll let you state it.
0: <laughs> Very and then I guess there's um you, you get this power pulse that's going to I guess be directed to whatever seven is going to be part of bus stop one and whatever the next one's for bus stop two. Correct and they'll
1: be deployed if there's multiple at a particular bus stop they'll be deployed a minute or two um away from each other Mm -hmm. uh, after each other because we don't want to be able to deploy one and then deploy another one right behind it and then they have recontact.
0: So I'm trying to imagine the way everything is situated in my head and um at this part of the flight when you're starting to deploy these secondary payloads what does what does the rocket I guess or what is the the piece that's actually flying what does it look like I guess you have Orion and then there's this deployment system and then there's is it the upper stage behind it
1: okay so um once we launched yeah um after about two minutes the solar rocket motors are um jettisoned, jettisoned mm-hmm. um and then uh, the core stage um lifts the rest of the vehicle up into orbit mm-hmm. um and after that time, when the core stage is spent, then it'll be jettisoned, and then you will have your upper stage and your Orion spacecraft, which of course the secondary payloads are still in, in part of that. Um, and then, then it'll go into what they call a translunar injection. That's um, basically the upper stage will ignite and put Orion into its um, mission profile going past the moon.
0: So at this point, right before it ignites, it's still in, I guess, Earth orbit? And the translunar injection gets it to the moon.
1: Correct. Okay. Okay. So um, once the upper stage has spent its fuel, um, the Orion spacecraft will separate. Okay. From so the upper stage. From the upper stage. Okay. So it will go through its onto its mission, and then about 30 minutes later, 20 to 30 minutes later, the secondary payloads um, will start their deployment.
0: I see. Okay. So
1: Orion is well away and actually speeding for it faster away from the upper stage. Yeah. Um, the upper stage once it goes through its disposal maneuver is actually flying kind of you would say backwards engine first towards the moon. Oh. So the secondary payloads will be ejected out the other direction. So
0: okay, so so So, so when so they're d-
1: deployed, the ICPS won't run back into them. You that's right. So they'll be deployed in the other direction.
0: But now Orion is is going and it's doing its own thing correct because uh, it did its job it it delivered Orion That's the primary payload now. It's off, but the secondary payloads are still part of this upper stage They haven't gone with Orion. They're totally separate. Correct. They have their own so it's like they're kind of doing they're going Different ways. Yeah, they have their own
1: mission profiles going in all different directions.
0: Okay, okay I don't know why that wasn't clear to me before but thank you (laughs) All right. so uh, I guess kind of backing up from there you're talking about the uh, solid rocket boosters are disposed, the core stage is disposed. Where are all these pieces going?
1: Okay. Uh, depending on their mission profile, all the the secondary payloads um, are going to end of missions at different places. Some will be actually crashing into the moon, um, and that's common where the others countries and their lunar missions um depositing on the moon some will um one or two will burn up in earth's atmosphere as it comes back Hmm. um some of the other ones uh that are going out into deep space of course just keep going the cusp which is going to the solar uh i'm sorry cusp which is going to the sun's vicinity will just stay out there and eventually uh, be pulled into the sun
0: okay Um, so that's all the secondary payloads
1: um correct and for each Mission, each payload um, that's launched on uh, US rockets, they all have to have an end of mission um, plan. What are they going to do to end their mission? Not just to be left out there as space junk, because that's mm-hmm. we're having, um, sorry, we're starting to have a lot of problems with, as you know, there's a lot of space junk around um, Earth, and oh, yeah. we don't want that same situation around other planets, too.
0: That's fair, that's fair and that's why that's part of the i mean this is going back but Cassini right that was the whole it it did its thing and it's instead of just letting it be it had a controlled entry into Saturn so that it didn't contaminate any other exactly any yes. other bodies yes yes and
1: of that it, it doesn't matter what size you are yeah. these small q sets have to have an end of mission
0: have to have an end of mission yes. awesome uh, but I did want to go back to uh, some of the earlier parts of the mission. Uh, right after launch, you know, you're talking about uh, solid rocket boosters separating and being Those exposed. go into the ocean. Ocean? Still, okay. But they're not
2: recovered this time. Oh, okay. You know, for shuttle they were recovered this time. It's too difficult, they're too large, so they're just going to sink. Okay. The external tank is, it um, can't, can't go into orbit, so it's kind of lofted in such a way that it'll break up over the Indian Ocean safely. Uh. So it's a very large, t- you know, this, this is much larger than the external tank of shuttle, so it's very important that it break up safely. So that's that's why you need the upper stage to actually bring the payload up into a circular orbit around the Earth. Otherwise, the payload would go down with the, uh, the core module as well.
0: Oh, that's right. And what about the, uh, I guess, the upper stage? You said it's going to be doing this deployment, but then after it deploys... All it's these a heliocentric,
2: it goes into a, a sun heliocentric disposal. So so it kind of goes away, and we should hopefully not see it again.
0: Okay. (laughs) All right. That's a very nice summary of EM1, and I feel like there's so much more to talk about. I kind of wanted to get into, you know, where are we now with SLS, all the, the history of it. So I think we should take a break and just sort of let this one be episode 41. We'll come back, and we'll do episode 42 and just sort of get into the process behind building the SLS, and then the journeys of where it's gonna go and beyond. So guys, thank you so much for coming on. We'll take a break. I'll see you in a few minutes. And for everyone else, I guess we'll see you for the next episode.
2: All right. Great. All right. Thank you. Look yep. forward to it. Thank you.
0: Roger and Actually a huge honor to break a record like this. Because they are, easy, but they are Never keep Welcome to space. Hey, thanks for sticking around. So the best places to follow development and delivery of the rocket as we test the major components and deliver it piece by piece to the Kennedy Space Center are on the social media channels on the web for the Space Launch System. So first, the website. You can go to www.nasa.gov slash, guess what, SLS. That's where you can get the latest and greatest on the Space Launch System. On Twitter, it's at NASA underscore SLS. On Facebook, it's NASA SLS, that's one word. Or, uh, this is one of the things that actually David Smith wrote, uh, you can actually search SLS Mission Planner's Guide. And it's a document that you can find on the web, you can download it, and it actually has a lot of great information on just the whole scope of the Space Launch System. We're really looking forward to the first launch of SLS and Orion from the Kennedy in a couple years. Sounds like we're well on our way to the pad, and we'll be launching astronauts back to the moon in just a few short years. If you have questions on SLS and its development, use the hashtag AskNASA on your favorite platform. Just go to the uh, Johnson accounts. Those are the ones we uh, look at. uh, The NASA Johnson Space Center accounts on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. You can submit an idea or a question, and we'll make sure to mention it's for uh, or just make sure to mention it's for Houston. We have a podcast and we'll bring it up in a later episode or maybe address it in an entire episode. The whole episode would be dedicated to the question. Who knows? So this podcast was recorded on March 20th, 2018. Thanks to Alex Perryman, Rachel Kraft, Laura Rashawn, Kelly Humphreys, Pat Ryan, Tyler Martin, Bev Perry, and all the folks at the Marshall Space Flight Center for coming on to help to put this together. Thanks again to Dr. Paul Bookout and Mr. David Smith for coming on the show. We'll be back next week with part two.